The game podcast is proudly sponsored by StarCityGames.com, and SCG's holiday sale is currently happening with hundreds of new items added each day through January 2nd. You can give the gift of SCG this year with gift cards, SCG merch, and tons of different supplies. Also from now until January 2nd, SCG is giving a 50% trade bonus on cards. And each week on SCG Premium, you can read excellent articles by Patrick Chapin, Sam Black, Brad Nelson, and me. everyone, welcome to the 56th episode of The Game Podcast. I'm your host, Jerry Thompson. Here with me is Brian, pretty dude, Gottlieb. Yeah, shout outs to some classic PlayStation games this week in my name. I didn't have any way to troll you directly, so I just I just talked about something I like. I Well, I checked the top 25 before the podcast just to make sure I would get your joke. Uh, no, come on. I'm, I'm more creative than that. I don't need to use the same joke twice. You'll get a fresh name every single week. Yeah, okay. I appreciate that. I mean, I did fall down to 25th. I'm tied for 25th. So I thought that there were like a few jokes you could make there just in the same vein, but a little bit different. I'll wait till you fall off to bring it back up. Well, I'm not going to a Grand Prix this weekend, so it's probably going to be the next week. (laughs) Beats. All right. Modern episode. As far as I can tell, standard is kind of tame right now. There's not a whole lot going on, right? No, I, I think we've said that a few times. Standard is just kind of like there. There's, I'm not saying give up on standard, do your thing, but uh, let's talk about modern instead. I, I mean, first of all, we get about 2,000 more listeners every time we talk about modern. So welcome those 2,000 people who are listening to us this week. Maybe check us out some of the other weeks too. I promise we do good work every week. It's not just the modern shows. Yeah, I, I can echo that, but I'm definitely going to put modern in the title and see what happens. That we'll get 2,000 more listeners every time. At people yeah. love modern. You know, right now, I love modern. Modern's interesting. We have a lot to talk about this week for sure. Yeah, I actually, dude, I want to play modern. I don't know. I think for Santa Clara, I'm playing standard, I believe, which I'm also fine with, but it's it's been so long. I had to skip GP OKC because I was hanging out with Raptor, you know? I thought you were getting excited about a legacy deck for Santa Clara. I was kind of, I was waiting for the big reveal of this new spicy legacy deck you have. Oh, no, no. Uh, it, it was just like the blue-white control deck that had Ruination. I just wanted Ruination people. Okay, so just a card you like, not an actual deck. No, it was a deck at 5 out of League. I was pretty excited about it, but Raptor basically vetoed. Like, no no one on my team wants to play Standard, so. Mm-hmm. <laughs> big surprise. So I'm I'm the standard dude, and that's okay. I'm coming off like a, a good record in a tournament in that format. So, so you're just priced in. Yeah, I, I think that'll probably be a winning strategy for your team. It sounds like you've assigned the right pieces to the right places. Yeah, and I'm not letting Raptor play with like nonsense decks. I'm making him play a good deck. So, probably a good strategy for one of the best players in the world. Yeah, I, I hope so, man. I hope so. Other than that, uh, modern. Yeah, I don't know what what is actually coming up for me probably not a lot maybe i just need to start playing on magic online more i don't know yeah always a great place to test out your new modern strategies i i think that the metagame is so open that you don't have to worry about kind of the divergence that you might see because you're going to get to play against a insanely wide variety of archetypes anyway so it doesn't even matter that there's some disconnect between the irl metagame and the online metagame yeah i definitely agree with that uh the only modern that I've really been playing is, you know, watching coverage, which sort of counts, but not really. And then whatever videos I do for Star City that happen to be modern. And yesterday's I played with Blue White Control, which is a deck that you reminded me that I made fun of previously. 
No, it's not, it's not that you made fun of. You basically invalidated its existence as a deck. You refused to consider it even a viable option. So I would now like to hear your report on playing blue-white control. So the thing is, is that things change, right? Things do change. So Grand Prix Oklahoma City had five big mana decks in the top eight, uh, another two Tron decks in the top 12, which is just like a ridiculous metric. I hate that I even like know that metric because does does it matter if they're in the top 12 or the top 13 or top 32? Like who cares, right? It, yeah, it's enough to say there were a lot of big mana decks around. Yeah, I mean, that sort of thing, like, oh, two more in the top 12 just strikes me as like, you know, people reporting on things to like better fit their narrative. Yep, absolutely. I mean, you know, you get to draw the line wherever you want and drawing it there certainly paints a picture of a a format dominated by big mana. Right, exactly. So, I mean, five in the top eight is a large number to red green valicate decks in the finals. Uh, That, I I don't know that that has ever happened. I think that red green valicate is a deck that has done well over the course of modern's history, but never really been truly recognized as like one of the best decks. Yeah, I I think I agree with that statement. There's certainly been times where Scapeshift is in tier one. I I don't think that's disputable, but specifically kind of red-green archetypes have always trended a little bit behind the kind of cryptic command style Scapeshift decks that were more a part of the metagame for a long time. I I certainly don't recall red-green Valcut Mirror um, ever occurring this late in a tournament, so no, you you would normally see like Scott Lip in top eight of a GP or something, like you know Rob Paisano or whatever, just like one of the one of the people playing the deck doing really well and having that deck do pretty well consistently. But yeah, this is the first time like two of them in the finals is just kind of absurd. Mm-hmm. So what the hell happened, man? Huh. That's a good question. I mean, I think all the buzz going into this event was kind of sitting on lantern shoulder is that a fair statement i know that's what we were both excited about and you know there was murmurings on twitter like oh sam's gonna go and get the deck banned and and by the way sam put up a totally respectable performance with his lantern war deck so we should probably shout that out before we trash on lantern but it it didn't really show up in the top eight it it didn't convert like a lot of people thought it may Uh, if you're looking for foils to kind of a sit around and do nothing strategy well maybe big mana is the way to do that. Uh, it certainly invalidates the ensnaring bridge plan. They don't care a ton about ensnaring bridges. I, I think Landers ad- adaptable and can find game plans against those style of decks, but you know, that could be one piece of the puzzle. One of the decks that those scapeshift decks were able to beat up on in their march to the top eight. Well, I think what happened was Sam and Zach Elsick basically like they removed the surgicals from their main deck, right? Mm-hmm. Because they started playing the war of invention version and surgical i would imagine against valakut or any of the tron decks yeah Yeah. zach started 9-0 and then he just played against a bunch of tron decks and lost and he was citing like chromatic sphere is the big issue which is like actually legit because you just can't stop it can't control their library yeah very true uh so i do think that there are things that lantern can do to make those matchups a little bit better and they were just kind of like off the radar and they ended up doing pretty well like I mean, for, for the last month or so, I feel like Storm was kind of the big story where it just like kept winning tournaments or like losing the finals or whatever. It was doing like incredibly well. And for Storm to still be like one of the most prominent biggest decks and have these like turn four, turn five, turn six, like slow-ish big mana decks, like it just seems like that's the type of stuff that Storm plays on. Yeah. I don't know. It is kind of weird, right? Like what, what happened to all the Storm decks? Like... 
Storm got beat up by like Snapcaster Thoughtseize, and then the big mana decks beat up on those. And then there were some graveyard decks running around in the mix too, Living End and Dredge. Yeah, uh, I think it's also worth noting that Tron ended up in the hands of some very good players as well. Seth Manfield chose Tron as his weapon of choice. I, I would love to ask Seth kind of, how did you get here? I, I don't think he's, when I think of Seth in modern, I don't really have a clear picture of the type of player he is, but certainly Tron is not what comes to mind for me when I'm thinking of Seth's deck selection. So I would love to see what what kind of the the factors that pushed him towards this deck choice. And you have Steve Rubin in 12th place as well, also playing Tron. Again, not someone I associate with the deck. Uh, that could just be a lack of knowledge on my part, but I, I really don't recall them either, either one of them having a trademark finish with Tron in the past. No, both of them are very underrated as far as their, their deck selection abilities. Mm-hmm. So yeah, like you, you might see something like, oh, Seth playing Tron, like that's weird, but it's like he does well. And the story at the end of the weekend is like, oh, like Tron was really well positioned. Like, you know, Seth figured it out or whatever. And it's like, yeah, obviously he did because he, he basically plays the best deck in every, in every tournament, you know? Yeah, and I, I honestly can't tell how he reached this conclusion. Now, like, there's the simple analysis that humans was kind of a deck on the rise, and, you know, you can see Tron certainly excelling in that matchup, although I think they do have some degree of preparation for it. It's not a buy, like, kind of, you know, I, the old matchup was red-green Tron versus, like, the birthing pod decks, and they were so hard on the birthing pod side. Like, red-green Tron was so advantage. I don't think things are as slanted at this point, but certainly still a good matchup. But even still, that's such a small percentage of the field. So there has to be some kind of overarching theme they're seeing in the field to be able to be like, okay, it's time for big mana. And and I'm at a loss. I can't tell you what it is. And usually, I actually think that's where a lot of my strength lies too, is in deck selection. But I don't have the answer here. And if you have it, please share it with me. I, I think it was just people like to play fair decks in modern. And these the fair decks kind of lined up well against what people were expecting with like gifts and or like gift storm whatever and you look at the top 32 there's like a lot of jeskai controls some grixis death shadows and it's just like all of these decks that tron just annihilates there is a lot of jeskai control floating around this this top 32 so that's kind of a good target point and the jeskai the top eight it was the one that has through the breach mm. which you know actually gives you game against decks like tron exactly nice little innovation um i always love how you can count on any modern top eight to have that one like, whoa, we've never seen this before. Almost every time in a modern top eight, you'll get that moment of kind of discovery. Yeah, for sure. Patrick is is like a local player to this area. I don't I don't know him all that well, but like his deck is pretty interesting. I mean, playing the through the breach combo in Jeskai is like not a thing that we've seen. Uh, I do like the addition of like colonnade to deal the final points of damage that your Emrakul deals. If you actually combo them out, like you get more burn spells in lightning helix if you want them. So yeah, I don't know. Like the, the white cards seem like a pretty nice addition. Uh, I guess you lose out on blood moon, which would have been pretty nice this weekend. Yeah, really good. You know, this is a, a very small splash in the main deck. You're only looking at the four paths to lightning helix. It's interesting because when I think of things that like the blue-red breach deck might struggle with in game ones, Lightning Helix and Path to Exile don't really seem to be the pieces they're missing to me. But then when it comes to your later games, obviously, I've always said that the white sideboard options are kind of the best options in modern. He's not leaning on a lot of the classics. Like you don't see things like Stony Silence and, and there's only one rest in peace. But even still, you can tell he's driving a lot of power 
uh, from the white cards in his side, yeah. specifically in Settle the Wreckage and Supreme Verdict. Like he gets a yeah. very clean answer to any size creatures. Yep. And with Path to Exile Main, that is kind of the thing that stands out to me where it's just like he, he very, very clearly wanted to kill bigger creatures. And to me, that kind of indicates like Death Shadow and stuff like that. And yeah. the majority of his sideboard is white cards. And while they're not the rest in pieces and stony silences that we're used to, like white still has a bunch of very good defensive options. Yeah, I mean, it, this strikes me as someone who was well-versed in the Breach deck, identified a kind of fundamental weakness, and was like, oh, here's my answer. It's a very clean one, very simple one, and, and was rewarded for kind of understanding his archetype inside and out. Yeah, absolutely. So yeah, I, th- I think it was just everyone was playing fair decks. Not everyone, but you know, like a, a sizable portion was playing fair decks. Like Big Mana was not really on people's radar, and I, th- I think that that changes now. And even like articles that went up today as of like Wednesday when we're recording this, like Sam Black's article was talking about how big mana is like definitely something that you need to be prepared for in modern. Like that is very much the narrative at this point. And that is something that people need to be aware of going forward. So things like Just Guy Control, even Brix's Death Shadow, like I feel like these decks are just going to drop off a little bit. And maybe that opens the door for something else to sneak in there, kind of like how Tron and uh, the Valakut decks did this weekend. But that's how we circle around to Blue-Eye Control, where this deck actually has Field of Ruin and Spreading Seas in it and a bunch of reasonable counterspells. So the, the Tron matchup, while still a little bit tough, I think is certainly more winnable than if you were playing like any other fair deck in the format. And like Field of Ruin is particularly like a really nice pickup. That, you know, we talked about making fun of you for dismissing blue-white before, and now you kind of see it, its strong point. I previously had dismissed Field of Ruin and its use in Modern, and it didn't really make sense to me that that card would see widespread play, given the existence of Ghost Quarter, Tectonic Edge, you know, a few other more fringe options that also see a small amount of play. So maybe you could tell me a little bit about why you think Field of Ruin is just such an upgrade in this style of deck. It's kind of like playing, you know, when you're talking about like Tectonic Edge versus Field of Ruin, it's like playing Spreading Seas versus Stone Rain or whatever. Like you don't need to outright kill their land necessarily. It is very much just about like removing the text box and just like turning into a waste or an island or whatever random basic. You you don't really care. You just want it to not be a Tron piece or not be like an Ink Moth Nexus or a Valakut or whatever, you know? And Field of Ruin allows you to downgrade their land while not sacrificing a land drop for you, which is pretty important in the deck that's trying to get to like Cryptic Command and various Planeswalkers and stuff, you know? So I played uh, half a league last night and I was very, very impressed with Field of Ruin just as a card. There was always a bizarre tension at place where like you were super happy to have access to Ghost Quarter because it was such a, a powerful option in those matchups where lands mattered so much, but you were also trying to hit your land drops and it was you know, imperative that you did so. And there was kind of no good answer in that spot. Like you, Ghost Quarter was a necessary evil, but you knew it was going to stunt your mana development. And now you have kind of this catch-all that can answer. I mean, granted, it's a little bit vulnerable in terms of like, it's not going to answer the turn three card on the play, but as a blue-white, you have other options to deal with that. You know, it's it's not really your your enemy number one. You just need to make sure that you don't let Tron sit and play for multiple turns. And obviously, Field of Ruin does a nice job of that while still allowing you to develop your mana and kind of get into that late game where you can start to close the door on the Tron player. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, that is, that is basically all blue-white control is looking for. It's just like, don't let your opponent have 10 mana. And then your, your cryptic commands and whatnot will be able to deal with whatever big stuff that they finally get to play. And with with Ghost Quarter, 
it seemed like it, it was just like in case of emergency, like break the ghost quarter, right? Like you only mm-hmm. did it when it was like a last resort because otherwise you just wanted your mana in play. But now it's like, oh, the Eldrazi deck played an Eldrazi temple. Like, yeah, I'll, I'll just kill that if I have free mana lying around because, you know, that hurts them and maybe even helps me because maybe you get to color fix or at least just like, you know, trade the colorless land for another island for Cryptic Command or a second white for Supreme Verdict or whatever. And yeah, just Field of Ruin just struck me as a nice utility piece that you can just use like willy-nilly as long as there's not something more specific that you need to hold it for. Like against Tron, I'm just keeping them off Tron and that's it, right? Yeah. But I, I found myself playing against like, black white eldrazi taxes deck and it was just like yeah sure i'll kill your shambling fence or i'll kill your eldrazi temple whatever or like go after your colorless sources you know i i see the upgrade now i feel kind of silly for poo-pooing on it before but especially in a world of big mana field of ruin certainly has a place what about search for Ascanta? did you have any copies of that in your blue white list i had two i played two the week before in the thopter deck and i i really like search i think it is very very good I don't think that it's necessarily something that you go like super, super hard on. The Thopter deck I played had like Thought Scours and stuff, and that was fine. But a lot of the time, like Search is a turn four play, even in modern, just because you're you're going to have to like deal with their stuff in the early game. And you don't necessarily want to take your shields down when you play Search. So you probably want to play it when you have like Mana Leak or Logic Knot open still. And you don't necessarily need to transform it immediately because you're not going to activate it immediately. You might be able to take advantage of the extra land drop, basically. But yeah, you're, you're not really in a huge rush. And sometimes the games come down to you activating it a bunch. But most of the time, it's just like you activate it once, pick up like a card drawer or a cryptic command or something, maybe a planeswalker to close the game. And like, that's it. Like you, you really don't need to get much out of it. Yeah, you know, fans of our cast who also listen to the First Strike podcast, we talked about Search at length uh, kind of in, in modern last night. And I echoed a lot of the same sentiments. I, I think two is the sweet spot. Three is problematic for modern where you're at such a – there's such a premium on just being able to execute your game plan. You really don't have time to take turns off. And this deck is able to do what it needs to do without Search. It functions just as well without Search. It's just kind of like this piece of inevitability that these decks have been missing for quite some time now. but the thing about inevitability is it was really difficult to insert it into your deck in modern because it could cost you so much in the early game. Search does a really nice job of, of bridging through that mid-game area, you know, being worthwhile in those first turns if you're looking for specific answers because a lot of decks in modern demand specific answers. I mean, we we're talking about a card like Field of Ruin where a lot of times you're super incentivized to find that early against the Tron deck or you'll just lose the game on the spot. Search is kind of contributing to that plan and it's bridging into the late game really well to form this kind of unstoppable engine which we've been missing since like i don't know i equate it in some ways to in the old blue white tron decks having access to an eye of ugin like the fact that you had that eye of ugin we're going to get it online at some point meant that in these games that if you've played a lot of modern prior to the printing of search for Ascanta against these control decks you know that when the control deck reaches that parity point and standard, that's usually the point where they just shut the door, they pull away. Like if they're on turn seven and not parity, they're just going to have the advantage from that point forward. In modern though, it used to be that 
as a player not playing the control deck, I still felt live into the late game. It didn't feel like they were able to close the door as effectively. And a lot of that is due to the strength of threats in modern and the fact that their answers just were not like, like they were basically forced to line up one for one. And it's a very difficult thing to do over extended turns against a Liliana and a Tarmogoyf. And, you know, if we go way far back, a Bloodbraid Elf, you know, all these cards that kind of generate these snowball advantages. But now there is a piece which just allows them to transition seamlessly into the late game. If it's on, they're able to establish a pretty unassailable position very quickly. So you're, you're right that it really only takes the one activation. But it's nice to know that when you're getting multiples, you've basically shut the door. Yeah, it is It is very similar to the Eye of Ugin in that sense, where it's like going long, you are going to win if this thing doesn't get dealt with. Mm-hmm. Like, it, And it has such a low opportunity cost. You know, like in standard, people are playing like Torrential Gear Hulks and a lot of Glimmer of Geniuses and uh, back in the old days, like Sphinx's Revelation, stuff like that. But like the opportunity cost to play those cards in modern is really high. Yeah, I, I think you're exactly right. And... Y- you don't see Sphinx, Sphinx's Revelation, right? Like one of the most powerful card drawing spells ever. Blue-white decks sometimes play a single copy. A lot of decks just completely exclude it because you're exactly right. The opportunity cost of having drawn that card is so problematic that you just can't afford um, those kind of dead in the early game type answers. And now we have something which transitions very well. So I, I think it's a good time for control. And if you look at even something like uh, the deck list that Corey Burkhart played into... I think 15th place this weekend. Have you seen the Grixis control list he played? Oh yeah. I, I loved his deck list. It was great. The inevitability his deck presents now is like crazy. Like he's got Colligan's command, cryptic command, snapcaster, all as four of plus the two search for Ascontas. Like you are not winning a long game against Corey Burkhart's deck. And under any circumstances, he can, he can play such a grindy game and, Man, am I excited about this deck. This is definitely the next modern deck I play because I love those kind of inevitable late games where you're just looping back snap caches and drawing an extra card every time right up my alley. So I thought this deck was really cool. The thing I like most about his deck is that he actually pulled the trigger on playing one Liliana's defeat in the sideboard. Uh, that's a card I, I've liked for a while in modern. I think one of our first episodes, I was kind of ex- exalting the virtues of Liliana's defeat. I was playing it in kind of a uh, black green rock. And I, I thought it's just a really nice, clean catch-all to a lot of problematic cards that exist in the modern format. And as, this was especially during the time of Grixis Death Shadow. I thought it was a great card to have against Grix- Grixis Death Shadow when they started leaning on their Lilianas. Yep. So yeah, I like a Liliana's defeat as well. I, I think it's a underutilized card in the modern format right now. I think its stock is likely going to go down after this weekend, but I do like the fact that he actually played it. And yeah, Corey has no reservations whatsoever about, you know, cards that people think are good or whatever. You know, like I'm sure a lot of people were just like, dude, that that card's unplayable. Why are you playing it? And he's just like, don't care. Like, I I think this is what my deck needs, you know? I I think that's an incredibly important ability for modern to just like identify these kind of fringe cards fringe combos fringe archetypes and being able to get edged that way the modern field while extremely wide it's also very rehearsed at this point like you kind of know how the matchups played out and because there's such a huge range of just incredibly powerful like basically I win the game cards. Obviously, Liliana's defeat doesn't fall under that category. But I'm thinking of things like, say, Madcap Experiment, Platinum Imperion combinations, or like something like Curse of Death's Hold against certain archetypes. There's just these weirdo cards which people aren't considering in their preparation for certain matchups. And having access to them makes a huge difference in modern. Yeah, what what about the person who 5-0'd with 8 Pongifies? Do you think his friends were like, dude, that deck's not good? 
I think his friends were like that. I think most people looking <laughs> at the deck right now are like that. I think I'm kind of like that, but I am still just absolutely odd and totally want to play this deck. Like, dude, his ratio of Ponga fives to creatures is three to one. <laughs> like, that's kind of crazy. Just for every yeah. three creatures, he also has a Ponga five. If you haven't seen this deck list, you should definitely take a look at it. It's wild. I, I don't know the player, but it's basically like an all in aggro. 16 deck. one drops. Yep. And they all feed off counters. And he's even got Avatar of the Resolute in his deck. Oh, yeah. Yeah. This, I mean, it's just kind of like another aggro deck, but it's coming from a different angle. And I'm sure his opponents had no idea what to expect. He's also got two Charter Course, card we've been well, hyping up. Love it. Yeah. Love it. I don't know if this deck is good. It's it's weird. I think his ratio of Ponga Fies to creatures is probably a little off. Like, can you do you really need eight Ponga Fies? Maybe you can get by with six Ponga Fies and, and take it from there. It's so good with like Young Wolf and Experiment One, though. No, it's I know it's, it's it's the archetype he it's the interaction he's built around. Like he's meant to absolutely take advantage of the Pongifies, and it, it's a really cool piece of deck building. I just am thinking of hands where like you have one Young Wolf in play and you've drawn three Pongifies, and you're like, oh well, these cards don't do anything. I mean, granted, you can kind of loop them, and they're also answers for you know. Tassigers and Death Shadows. You're, you'd much rather face a Pongified creature than a 11-11 Death Shadow. So, the, so they're not completely dead, but I just don't know if the three to one ratio is exact is worth preserving. Basically, that's that's fair. I think it is, but maybe who knows? I have, I have no games with eight Pongified. That may shock you, but I've never actually yeah. seen this deck up before. So I could be completely wrong. But getting to bust out my Cloudfriend Raptors and uh, Strangle Root guys is. It's pretty exciting. So at some point, I'm taking this out for a spin. I don't know that I'm going to be pleased with it, but it, it just goes to show like if you let your imagination go unchecked and modern, there's a lot to be done. And like, is this possibly just a strictly worse version of another deck? It's possible. I, I mean, it's it's not doing anything new. There's certainly decks that can beat down just as hard. You think about like a red-green aggro deck built around Burning Tree Emissary. Like they do a lot of the same type of stuff where they're able to amass power very quickly. But, you know, he's got access to Spell Pierce and he's got access to Unified Will and Postboard Games and Ceremonious Rejection. So certainly his build adds some new wrinkles. Maybe this is the next archetype that everyone's going to be playing and talk about. We just don't know right now. If the first five color humans list showed up, you'd be like, oh, that deck looks like a pile. Yeah. Well, five color humans is, is now a part of the metagame. And maybe the next thing is eight Pongify. <laughs> so three things. Uh, first, this deck is incredibly cheap outside of the mana base. Yeah. It's just that'll, like all that'll proliferate it through Magic Online like wildfire. So yep. expect to see this in the queues. Yep. Second thing is this is a lesson in just like looking at all the one or zero mana cards in modern and just like seeing if you can put them all in a deck. Because mm-hmm. this deck is just all one mana cards, which is awesome. And it just means that you're gonna be doing like explosive powerful things that people aren't necessarily prepared for. And over the course of Magic's history, it's like there have been enough things that you can pongify for value, you know? And it's just like, oh, well, maybe this is a deck because it probably goldfishes on, like, turn four. So, yeah, that's that's already, you know, better than, like, goblins or, what, like, these other decks that people sometimes play, right? Mm-hmm. The, the last thing is, uh, you know the, the fake pongify in uh, Fate Reforged? It's like one you exile a creature manifest. Yeah, yeah, I remember that. That card used to cost you. Wow. That would be uh, 
an absolutely critical mass of Pongo Fies in that case, if that still costed you. Yeah, it would not it would not work with like Young Wolf or Experiment One the way you wanted it to. But I was I was a, a firm believer that Pongo was a little too good for that standard, and it's like downgraded Pongo too because like or upgraded depending on how you look at it because they only get a two two. Mm-hmm. Pongo is a very real card. I, I don't mean to kind of disrespect that card. It, it it is a very unique effect in the history of Magic that does a lot of stuff. Yeah, I like it. This this deck is just a delight, and I am super happy that it got posted. You know, my friend Max Brown, when he uh, he's a very underrated deck builder. He used to be really inspired, and he doesn't play as much these days. But one of his things that he always looked for in every format, and I kind of took it to heart because he found a lot of success with it, and it often led to surprisingly good results, is just looking for redundancies across card pools. Like, any time there were eight Llanowar Elves in a format, he was excited. Plus, he felt that was something you could exploit when you're able to build in that kind of consistency to your deck. And this deck is kind of like the shining example of that. Like, it's all the redundant one drops that can get counters on them and then the eight Pongifies. It's it's like the purest exemplification of that theory I've seen in a very long time. And I always thought that was a cool theory. And it was one that often led to to really busted results. I don't know if you remember kind of a, a deck that I think Huey won an SCG with it, but it was a mono green like elf ball deck that used that Hydra that doubled the number of counters that were put on it and the six mana Garrick. This was the open that was at uh, the New Jersey Invitational. It was like at one point the largest open ever had like 1,150 people. I think that's correct. Yeah. And it may have actually been a ZV deck to start with, which would not surprise me because again, another person who would build decks in that fashion is definitely Zvi Moschwitz. So yeah, for sure. But, but, but that was the same concept where it was this, all these redundant mana producing effects and you were able to exploit them to the fullest. Yeah. And actually this, this kind of ties into blue white because you have not only spreading seas, which is a good way of disrupting big mana, but you also have field of ruin and it gives you that, that amount of consistency where it's just like you can really mess with someone's mana. And especially if like their lands do things like blue white is very good at actually controlling that. And if it only had one or the other, I don't think it would be very good against Tron. But like the fact that you can reasonably see like two or three of these per game, I think is really important. Yeah, exactly right. So I know you had messed with Thopter Sword a little bit. Is Thopter Sword close? Is it close to getting into your blue-white decks at this point? Or is it just not there right now? If people are playing creatures, I think it's excellent. Like creatures or control decks. But when Thopter Sword takes like three to four turns to kill someone and people are just going over the top of it, then it's not a very viable strategy. Yeah, it would look pretty silly in this top eight, right? Like it doesn't do a whole lot. Right. If you get to use it as a defensive tool alongside like an inevitability tool, then great. But if people are just going to like scapeshift kill you from like 40 or whatever, then it doesn't really matter. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I could see that. You know, I, I want Thopter Sword to be good. I remember the glory days of Thopter Sword, but just not there. Uh, the format has to look a little different before we're back in those days. Yep. Uh, so the the things that I figured out from playing with blue-white is that you basically want as many cards as possible that will trade one for one with with like no reservations. So like I saw a lot of the modal list like not really playing a lot of spell snares. And it's like I, I get that spell snare is not at its all-time best right now, but like Anytime you get to snare like a ritual or even like a brawl or whatever, any sort of like two mana creature, like Snapcaster Mage going along in these control mirrors, like spell snare is worth it, right? Mm -hmm. But there were enough games where I had a spell snare in my hand and we're kind of like in this top deck war and they just draw like a three drop or something. And it's like, 
okay. I'm like slowly piecing this together. We're like, you know, this deck has a bunch of like Supreme Verdicts, Paths, Detention Spheres, Cryptic Commands, Mana Leak, Logic Knot, things like that. Like all of the cards just traded with an opponent's card at the very least. Mm-hmm. And I think that you need to basically stay along those guidelines when you're building at least blue-white control. The other thing that I found was that I had dead mana a, a reasonable amount of the time, like in the, the early turns. Like, what if my opponent's like not cooperating and like not jamming their best spells into my mana leaks or whatever? I do think that the deck could probably benefit from a couple copies of Think Twice, but maybe that's like a little too slow and ponderous, you know? Yeah, is that the cleanest way to kind of maximize dead mana still? I, it feels like something should have happened since Think Twice that is kind of an upgrade, but I'll be honest with you, nothing's springing to my mind right now. I mean, I, I wouldn't mind just having a two-for-one, and I like the fact that it would be an instant, because like you could play things like Wall of Omens, assuming that the O4 body is relevant, and uh, if Wall of Omens were good, I would be more interested in playing something like Restoration Angel, but mm. I think the body on Wall is just mostly irrelevant at this point like yeah you can path it if in like a matchup where they're both dead or whatever but that's not super exciting so who cares i, I know you haven't listened to first strike this week but we literally had this exact same conversation about wall of omens yesterday too uh, nice we're all hitting on the same points you're exactly right though the 04 body is is, is not at a good place right now it, it i think it demands cards like restoration angel in your deck before you can realistically consider playing wall of omens there's just not enough value as the 04 it doesn't feel like a modern card to me, basically. Uh, not at the moment. I mean, like when people are playing Burn and Zoo and stuff, then Wall of Omens is great, right? But that's- yeah, even, st- even still, I kind of think it has to have some additional upside. Like it was insane in the old Jeskai Splinter Twin decks and where you yeah. could like put a Splinter Twin on it or you're already playing Restoration Angel and Kiki Jiki and it was just this huge source of value throughout the game. But in terms of just like, I'm playing straight blue-white control and like the most I can do to maximize my Wall of Omens is cryptic bounce it i don't know if you can sell me on wall of omens as a modern card at that point i get there's a theoretical metagame that wall of omens would shine in i think we're a long way from that and just so anytime you're trying to say oh is there a theoretical metagame for this i think that means you can't consider a card like that anymore because even if there was a theoretical metagame it's so impossible to predict you have to have game against everything and you can't play narrow cards like wall of omens anymore yeah, but it, so it's narrow, but it it still cycles, right? Like it's it's not that big of a deal. It's just like how much hate do you need against creature decks? And right now there just aren't a lot of creature decks. I guess it does check that box of of addressing a macro archetype, right? Like it's not trying to address micro, it's trying to address creatures as a super type, not a particular deck. So in that Correct. context, I understand what you're saying. If there's a, a threshold of the number of creature decks that you could cross, then you can consider Wall of Omens. But now is not the time. Uh, I definitely agree with that. So the other thing that I thought about was whether or not I wanted an additional threat in the sideboard. And it, it came up a couple times. And I think I actually want to try Dragonlord Ojutai. My buddy Rob Lombardi is going to be super excited to hear that. He tries Dragon Dragonlord Ojutai in every modern deck. He said he's had good results with it. One of the most powerful control finishers ever. Is it better than something like... I don't know, there's Planeswalkers out there, which are worth considering. Six mana Elspeth is a card you see sometimes out of these decks. Yeah, but but five is, is so much. Five a lot less than six. six. No dispute here, especially in modern. Shaving that one mana can can mean the world. So yeah, I, I could see Dragonlord or Jutai making its way into the sideboard. Yeah, so uh, that was about it. Uh, I, was, I was pretty pleased with the deck. If the videos go up and you watch them, 
probably just ignore round two because I played horrendously, but I won the other two matches and the deck felt really good outside of like the random cosmetic changes that I would make. So I know that things have changed a lot, but I'm still counting this as a win for me in the long term game podcast tally because I told you blue white was good. Granted, I was talking about a completely different deck, but I'm still giving myself the credit for calling it in advance. Boom. This deck is so different. And, <laughs> and it's like Field of Ruin got printed. Field of Ruin is good, which we didn't know. And it has Field of Ruin plus Burning Seas coming off the heels of a tournament where there was just big man everywhere. Like, come on, man. This yeah, is I can't a, remember if we were considering deck. search at that point either. Was that at, was that post search for Escanta being printed? I don't know when the podcast was, but I was pretty high on search for modern. It's just like it, it's a, a two mana insano threat, you know? No, no, I, I think we both I think we were both always high on search and modern. I just wasn't sure if we were talking about blue white at a time where search existed or not. That's all. Sure. I mean, I know that when we were talking about it, we did mention like Sphinx's revelation and trying to play like that inevitable game plan, you know. But yeah, different different deck, I think. Fair enough. I'm still giving myself the win. You don't have to look at my win column. It, it's it's there for my my own edification. That's fine, man. As long as it doesn't count against me. <laughs> uh, so, what else is out there in, in modern that you want to talk about right now? I I know I wanted to talk a little bit about the Moto PTQ. Oh, uh, let's let's do that then, because one of my okay. favorite decks won. Yeah, one of mine too. One that I, I think on the same podcast we talked about blue white. We talked about blue red breach, and blue red breach comes through. Uh, it has adapted some cool new tech out of the sideboard. It, it's playing Mad Madcap Experiment and Platinum Imperion. Uh, one of my good friends, Nate Barton, just qualified for the Pro Tour with the same package at his RPTQ. He said the Madcap Experiment Platinum Imperion thing was indispensable. He says there's no way he wins the tournament if he doesn't have those four cards in his sideboard. And it's kind of interesting because that's something... I would dismiss out of hand as like janky and, you know, a, a little bit try hard. And you pointed out some of the flaws when we were talking earlier in the Madcap Experiment Platinum Imperion game plan. Isn't that it's only good for one post-board game, right? They get to go to the well and, and kind of adjust to um, this new strategy you're presenting in game three, assuming you steal game two. I want to dismiss it out of hand, but I get the need to just do something so proactive, so powerful and modern that again, catches a wide swath of decks. There's a lot of decks that don't have a clean answer to a, a Platinum Imperion, especially post-board where they've kind of trimmed a lot of their hate. So I really like this approach and I, I'm not surprised to see this deck do well. I think this is going to continue to become a bigger player in the modern metagame. So Blue Red Breach, I think is awesome. And it's it's doing something similar to Blue White Control where you get to play like some cantrips, some counter spells, Cryptic Command, Snapcaster Mage, etc. And you have a plan against big mana decks. Mm -hmm. uh, so, you know, with Blue White, it's land destruction them. With this deck, it is just through the breach combo kill them. Uh, backup plan is Blood Moon them. The thing I don't like about this deck is how easy it is to sideboard against because you're not presenting really like any creature threats. Like Blood Moon is your backup plan, but... That's just how they play against you. They don't necessarily need to like sideboard any differently against you. The Madcap plan actually makes it kind of tough to sideboard against. I, I think that most people just in the dark are going to remove like all their paths and whatever creature removal, and then you're going to be able to get someone with the Empyrean. But then what happens in game three? Like, I'm not sure, I guess. I mean, I'm, I'm pretty sure like you still keep it in and they still keep it in and just whatever happens, happens. Like game three is probably where you're hoping for through the breach, but you will cast Madcap Experiment if you have it. 
Yeah, it's a fair question. I, I posited that you get to play the shell game a little bit. You just take your sideboard, shuffle in all 15 cards between each game and, and make them guess and make them adapt and make your opponent uncomfortable. Um, it's kind of like, you know, that's the tenant of a good aggro player is that their goal is to make their opponent uncomfortable, force your opponent into difficult decisions. So you're kind of being aggro in your sideboard and you're forcing your opponent to maybe make a mistake right off the bat um, by keeping in cards that are going to be ineffective against you. I don't know what the best way to approach this sideboarding conundrum is. I see that there's a fifth place blue red breach deck, which has uh Karanos God of storms. Hate I it. really, I really like that card in a context where there's, there's no chance your opponent is able to keep in removal against you. I used to play a copy in like miracle sideboards when I had access to red, because it was just a very, very difficult card for opponents to answer. But I think in this context, it's kind of the same thing they'll find good answers to Karanos and what is, what is it really dominant against? Like, it's only really good when the game is going long. Yeah, I, I like their sideboard Young Pyromancers a lot better. Than the Karanos. Yeah. Yeah, it runs away with the game much faster, right? You're not kind of getting this incremental advantage that starts on turn five. Like, when I tell you there's a card that's guaranteed to, over the course of five turns, put you really far ahead, but you can't play it until turn five, and you're in, you're talking about the modern format, You're a lot of times you're not interested in that card. That's just not something that's meaningful to you. Yeah, I'm off it. <laughs> yeah, so, so the young Pyromancer approach might be the way to go. I, I really like that as, you know, asking some really difficult questions, starting with turn two. Like, you better have an answer for this, or the game's going to snowball out of control quickly. Yeah, and I'm, I'm down with that. I mean... Young Pyromancer uh, with like the the sideboarding shell game is just like okay. I mean they're they're probably keeping in their lightning bolts anyway. Like certainly things like Fatal Push are going to come out, but like once you show them Young Pyromancer, then yeah, you know they have to keep in some kind of bad cards in their deck maybe. But like Platinum Empyrean, it's like what are they going to have? Like Colagon's Command, Path to Exile, like these cards that are like kind of serviceable no matter what. I I I don't really know how I feel about it. Like the the real question is just like how often does Madcap Experiment come in? how many games is this actually going to steal you? Because, I mean, it's possible that, like, you lose game one, you win game two without even showing the Madcap, and then you win game three also, right? Yeah. Like, because of Madcap. So if you're bringing it in in a lot of spots and it's good in a bunch of spots, then I could totally see it and I'm totally down with it. Uh, You know, like you said, you basically just get to dictate how your opponent has to react to you, you know, like... You are you are presenting this thing that is multifaceted, and they have to think about it. And maybe it ends up affecting a game, maybe not. But at least, like you know, they have to make different decisions based on what you have presented versus you know you just presenting your same sixty and them just getting to sideboard out all their removal. Yeah, and I think there's just there's a good amount of value in being deceptive and asking tricky questions in modern and and just forcing your opponent to have it. It, it applies with all phases of the game. It's in sideboarding. It's in deck building. Uh, in deck selection. I, I think there's a lot more room for trickiness in modern than people are currently using. It's something that when I first started playing modern, it's what I loved about the format. I felt like I could do anything and get away with it and kind of get my opponents over and over. And, you know, it took me a lot of years to work out the desire to be clever from my game, to have that unique one of that people are like, oh, maybe this guy's onto something. I worked that out of my game, but I think maybe it's hurting me a little bit. I think that's a beneficial approach in modern sometimes to have those surprise whammies uh, in a field so broad in a a metagame, which is at times indefinable, but also well rehearsed at this point. Like we know the players, we mostly know what's showing up. It's nice to have a whammy to slip to your opponent. Yeah, I definitely agree with that. I mean, anything that you can do to change the dynamic 
of the matchup and just make it so that they're a little bit uncomfortable. Like, you know, playing a weird deck in the first place gives you a lot of game in that regard because, you know, maybe they haven't play tested against you or they don't know exactly what's in your deck or like how it operates or whatever. And then you introduce like some weird sideboarding stuff where you're kind of like sidestepping the battle that they think they're supposed to fight and you're just doing something completely different. I think that that just translates into more wins for sure. Like you just make your opponent have to make a bunch of difficult decisions, right? Yep. I used to love this. I remember one of the first legacy decks I had success, success with was Cephalid Breakfast and I sideboarded into Natural Order Progenitus from my sideboard. Sure. And it was like, I, I felt awesome every time your opponent was playing a different game in game two and three. They literally had no idea what they were facing and the cards just didn't line up the same way. The answers they needed didn't line up the same way. And it felt very difficult to lose when you're able to execute that game plan. And I think there's a lot of that floating just under the surface in modern that we should probably be doing more to apply. Yeah, I definitely agree. It's just a fine line, right? Between is is this actually good? Does this actually give me equity? Or is this just me being cute and it just doesn't matter in the slightest? Yep, uh, you're exactly right. And, you know, you're going to have to ask yourself that question. Where do I draw this line? And it's, it's a very hard question to answer. Yeah, I definitely agree. And it, I mean, it, it might just change week to week, right? Sure, sure. I mean, look how much the format changed this week. Nobody expected this kind of big mana type situation we were dealing with. And, you know, if, if you had, I guess this is a bad example, but you had, you know, some kind of exiling effect. I forget what the card's called, but the, the red three that exiles all of a copy of a, a given non-basic land. If, if you had that as your whammy this week, you picked the right whammy, right? Crumble the dust. Crumble the dust. That's that's the guy I was thinking of. And the older version, which I, I no longer know the name of because it's been made functionally irrelevant. Sewing salt. Yes, that is the one. Yep, that, that would be a good whammy for this week. There's going to be a good whammy most weeks, and uh, you have to find it. It's a very difficult game to play, but it's out there. Yeah, I, I mean, like Crumble the Dust is a card that I would play in blue decks, I think, but it's weird because you need a way to make it so Get they there. can't like yeah like you you can't just like let them play Karn on three if your plan is crumble to dust right and yep. the blue decks either have like mana leak or they have thought seize or reman you know something like that to actually prolong the game enough to get there but if you're playing like a zoo deck like that's not really going to work out but i like the fact that blue eye control has spreading seas and uh this through the breach deck has blood moon in addition to the like you know just reman into through the breach kill you and nothing you did is relevant. I, I think I like the the smaller options, not like the actual hammer, because it's even against like the Titan Shift deck, like it it is difficult to nail them with Crumble to Dust, right? Yeah, they can, especially if they're aware of your strategy, they can do a good job of of protecting their key cards. So. Yeah, but they they might just do it accidentally because of things like Fulminator Mage or whatever too. Uh-huh. Yeah, and they just might not even know that they're doing it. So I I do think that. You know, Rooney 56, like this first place PTQ deck, like they have three Blood Moons. And uh, Sean Pottinger in fifth place has two Blood Moons, two Spreading Seas. I don't see a ton of big mana in this tournament, but like, I don't know, Blood Moon just in general seems very good right now. Like if you can kill Aether Vile and then Blood Moon the Humans deck, like lights out. Yeah, I kind of hate that the Blood Moon is the mana check on the format. I I liked it a lot. I mean, obviously this has never been the case in Modern. Where there needs to be a mana check, I really prefer Wasteland. I think it is more interesting as opposed to just, here's my spell, did I win the game? Whereas Wasteland at least leads to some, you know, tempo considerations and interesting decisions. 
But, you know, that's kind of beside the point. A little gripe about the health of modern. I, I think actually modern might benefit from Wasteland. I know a lot of people like lose their minds when I say that. But I would rather see it than Blood Moon is the check on mana in the format. I definitely agree with that. I mean, I, I don't know if there should be like some fixed Wasteland, like, you know, tech edge with no restriction or whatever, like maybe just some sort of activation cost. Yeah, it's it's a tough card to design. And I get that people also don't want to play against Wasteland. Like that's not a good play experience a lot of the time, but I do think it leads to a overall healthier environment. But if you look at modern right now, it's not really the diversity or the power of the mana bases that's defining things short of the large mana. Like it's not the fact that you have access to many colors. It's more what your lands are capable of doing. Yeah. Well, the thing with the humans deck is kind of funny because they have like all these caverns and unclaimed territories and stuff like that. They're playing four horizon canopies basically just because they can get away with it. Mm -hmm. But like if people are actually playing blood moon, then they could just go back to like, you know, having some fetch lands and a couple basics and like, they would be okay. They'd certainly be much better off. But yeah, right they're now still, they're, they're still a deck, hundred percent. They're still a deck. Yeah, and they're just not being incentivized to do that. So they're just like, all right, we'll play all these Horizon Canopies and Sea Chrome Coasts and like all planes because of Path. But that's it. Who cares? Yeah, yeah. Um, and I think that's the right approach for the time being. Because again, the field's too wide, and there's just like like Blood Moon decks aren't a huge percentage of the metagame. Right, and maybe that should change. Maybe, and it, it did in this PTQ, right? Like two Blood Moon decks in the top eight. Um, and a win. So you never know which metagame you're going to face when you show up for a modern tournament. <laughs> you don't. And I don't know, I guess this this is kind of a nice segue into talking about like sideboarding and stuff. But also in the case of big mana decks, kind of like taking over the format, I would urge people to not overreact to it. It's just something yeah. that you need to be cognizant of. And my recommendation, and I'm going to go more in depth on this in, in my article this week for Star City, is that you should probably choose a deck that naturally has a fighting chance against those sorts of decks, not go out of your way to include things like crumble to dust or what have you. And don't play like, you know, quote unquote bad decks like Scred Red or Green Red Land Destruction because those decks might be very good against Tron, but they're not very good against a lot of other things, right? So I would just be looking at a strategy like this Blue Red Breach deck where you are you get to play the blue cards, you get to play kind of this controlling game, but you have a combo finish and you have Blood Moon as a backup plan that is just a hammer against them. And if you don't play against any Tron decks, whatever, like you're still a good deck. Yeah, super, super strong modern advice. You can't afford to go hard. Go look at the metagame percentages. You can't target a deck that won a tournament. Even where we're talking like kind of, we're talking more of a macro archetype, right? We're talking big mana. You can't target your deck against big mana. It will lead to frustration and you not doing particularly well in the tournament. You can be cognizant of big mana. You can hedge a little bit towards big mana, but just targeting big mana is a recipe for disaster, 100%. Yeah, I mean, if you add up all the big mana archetypes, so the various Tron decks, this includes Eldrazi Tron, even though that's like kind of a misnomer, the Valakut decks, it's like maybe 20%, right? It is if, Assuming that the number went up a little bit over this past week as more people are realizing that you know, it, it was in a good place at one point. Yeah, I think that's still, I think that's still too high. Yeah, I think it's still yeah, too maybe high. maybe 20%, right? That's not a lot. Nope. It's just not a lot. So playing green, red land destruction so that you can smash 20% of your opponents. I mean, that's three rounds during the Swiss of a GP. Exactly right. And I, I think that this is kind of, there's been a lot of lessons to learn over the course of modern. And this is one that, 
took me a little while to learn. Uh, I was trying to adapt too hard to the modern format and it cost me a lot. You know where it did work was in the context of the old school PTQs where you had kind of like a set metagame. The same people were showing up week after week and oh, the yeah. meta was very track. Like then it was a successful strategy. But when you're just showing up to a GP, and again, most of this advice is geared towards the GP. If you're showing up to your local store and you know what your local store is going to be playing, then you can kind of throw this advice out the window. Hell but showing yeah. up to a GP, you, you have to be far more adaptable than you know, thinking you're going to nail a metagame or a Star City Open. Same exact thing. Like You're just not going to peg the meta like that. Yep. I walked into a PTQ back in the day in Kansas City, and I was like all set to play Psychotog because Psychotog was like very good in like the, the Minnesota, Wisconsin region. But in Kansas City, things were a little bit different, and a Grand Prix had just happened uh, in Europe. So like the EXO deck list got posted after day one, and it was a bunch of like red deck wins and Suicide Black. And I just audible the morning of. Uh, like off mm-hmm. of Psychotog and into a rock deck, and I I sold the slot in the finals. And if I had played that Psychotog deck, I would just got annihilated. You yeah. know, yeah, perfect example. Yeah, that is the sort of thing you could do back in the day. But now it's like you walk into any modern tournament, unless it is like yeah, thirty people you know, and they only own one deck. You have no idea what people are going to do. You walk around the room, and it's like, all right, there's three people who are friends, and they're all playing Jund. Okay, whatever. You know, yep. but like they're the only people playing Jund in the room. Yeah, it's it's a crazy new world. Stay diverse. And, and I think you, we started on this topic by talking about sideboarding. And I think that applies to sideboarding just as much. These targeted hate cards are, are very difficult to play. Ari Lax wrote a, a good article a few weeks back now, I think, about sideboarding in modern. And I, I really liked his kind of tagline, which was that if you don't have a ton of one-ofs in your modern sideboard, you're probably doing it wrong. And I really like that approach. I love like being cognizant of the diversity of the field in your sideboard construction and, you know, playing cards, which are able to, you know, you're saying to yourself, okay, I need my graveyard hate, but this graveyard hate can also get me some points in this matchup. If I play, you know, graph diggers cage, then I have some more answers against company and that's good. So I'll play one of graph diggers cage, one of relic of progenitus because it's good in that, this matchup and a one of rest in peace. Cause that is just my catch all for graveyard hate. And you probably by diversifying like that, end up with a better position than you would have otherwise. And that's something that hasn't been true for a lot of magic because you're so incentivized to find the hammer, find the best tool for the job. But now I think there's some value in when you're when you're trying to build a broader sideboard and not this type of sideboards we talked about previously, like the Madcap Experiment sideboards. There's a lot of value in diversifying your card choice. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I can't remember the last time the Thopter deck list I posted uh, or that I did a video on for Star City was like one of the like most painful looking modern sideboards I've ever had in a while. I think it was right, but it was like four thing in the ice, four Leyline of Sanctity. Wow three graph diggers cage three negate one disenchant that sounds crazy for modern why why do you think that was the correct sideboard for that deck well i wanted a transitional sideboard plan that's like kind of similar to the madcap experiment thing where like main deck Mm -hmm. i basically have no targets for a creature removal right so i think thing in the ice is the best one and it's it's like a good threat and a good defensive tool against like humans and stuff uh, Leyline of Sanctity was just the card that I wanted against both Storm and Valakid and Ad Nauseam and stuff. Just like not a thing that's going to KO them, but just a thing that will like get me to turn four, you know, and have two counterspells open. Negate is just the counterspell I wanted against all those decks. And then Cage, I thought, was the graveyard hate I wanted because of Collected Company. And because like Cage doesn't touch anything in my deck, right? And then a Miser's Disenchant, because why not? <laughs> because everyone loves disenchant because so there are a, artifacts and enchantments you know people play those 
Yeah. So it sounds like you were taking kind of a, a different broad approach and doing this bizarre hybrid of the madcap and typical sideboarding plan, which kind of led you to some more uh, traditional looking numbers in your sideboard. Right. But then the blue white deck I played the next weekend has two Vendillion, two Negate, two Rest in Peace, two Surgical, two Stony Silence, a Settled Wreckage, a Disdainful Stroke, a Dispel, a Condemn, and a Crucible of Worlds. Yeah, I think that's a really great example because you can see how those cards kind of can flow in different directions and have applications across a very, very wide swath of matchups. So, right. Yeah, I, I think that's how you should be building your sideboards right now in Modern for sure. Yep. Uh, people... I uh, have, have commented on my deck list like this, and it's just like, why do you have like two negates, one stroke, one dispel? Like, why aren't they all negates or why aren't they all this? And it's just like, they're good in different spots, but like, there's a, a lot of overlap there. You know, like, stroke mm-hmm. can counter a room coil engine against Tron, but negate can't, right? And maybe you don't want four negates. Like, you maybe you want a stroke to counter a primeval titan. Yeah, I, I love it. I, I think that's exactly right. There's just too much out there. Take this advice. I think this is really good advice. And you kind of made a distinction before about decks which sideboard in different fashions. So when when we're talking about this, we're talking about the typical modern deck that's doing a large-scale sideboard plan, not one like Tron where you kind of have a core you have to keep in place and you can only slot a few things. Um, it The advice doesn't apply really in the same way. I still do think, though, it, there is the opportunity to look for diversity in your sideboard slots. It's just not quite... I don't think you're going to end up with the 15-1 of sideboard for Tron. Like that's probably not going to be a successful approach. There's probably some very real issues you have to address and you have to do so in very limited space. So you're going to need some hammers. Yeah, I think the more polarizing matchups your deck has, the more likely it is that you're just like, oh, I need four right. relics or four surgicals or whatever. And it just like, it has to be this thing. And decks like Tron and Storm are those sorts of decks where Storm is just like, all right, I have pieces of the puzzle to beat Thoughtseize decks. I have Giga Drows to beat Counterspells. I have Empty the Warns to beat Graveyard Hate. I have like some Counterspells to fight the Mirror Match and other count- like control decks, whatever. And that's that's just it. You know, like they don't need like a Shatter, a Disdainful Stroke, whatever, because those aren't battles that they care about. But mm-hmm. for, for any mid-range deck or, you know, control deck where your matchups are going to be closer across the boards, like you have a bunch of like 55 and 45% matchups, like you need to get the most out of every sideboard slot. You can't play against Affinity and be like, oh, you know, I only have two cards or whatever. Like I, I want to have two Stony Silence, one Settle the Wreckage, one Condemn to be able to bring in against Affinity instead of just like three Stony Silences. Yeah, they get to still proactively ask the questions, and that bails them out of a lot of spots, whereas you need to be able to find all your answers, which is a very different task to undertake. Yeah, for sure. So yeah, I don't know. I do, I do think it, it it matters on the deck and the matchups and what you think the metagame is, but I think for the most part, uh, one of the things that I think I've always <clears throat> been best at is consolidating sideboard space. It's just like, oh, well... I don't know, maybe maybe I have this this stony silence, but I also want a, a card against aggressive decks. So like like Settle the Wreckage is a thing that is kind of an affinity hate card, but also could be good against a collected company deck. You know, like maybe mm. there's just a, a place where I need to get like an extra spot removal spell in my in my sideboard. So like how do I make that just basically appear? You know, and it, it is by consolidating things and playing weaker cards overall, but you just get to sideboard more cards and certainly you have to pay attention to like how many cards you can bring out in those matchups, you know, so you're not yeah. like over sideboarding or anything. So it's, it's, it's tough, you know, like it's a lot of work before every tournament to like figure out your sideboard plans and 
give or take like roughly how many cards you can board out and how many you want to board in and all that stuff for every matchup, especially in a format that is as wide as modern, but it's doable. Yeah, it's a delicate dance. Do you ever use elephant deck building? Uh, what is that? You, you don't know what the elephant method is where you basically like build 15 different decks for the 15 different matchups you want to address. And then you use that oh, to get sure. to the number of, of cards you want to play. Yeah. So it's like, ideally, what would my 60 look like against burn post board? Yep. Yeah, I've done that. Uh, the, the, the problem with my way of handling these things is a lot about just like ranges and hedging. So it's like, I might write out the perfect 60 or whatever, but it's like, oh, maybe I want two of this or maybe two of this, or if they're this version, it might look like this, you know? So like, I'll generally just be like, all right, there are eight cards that I could conceivably sideboard out. Like five of them are definitely things that I want to take out. And then I'll have like six or seven cards that I could maybe bring in depending on their version. You know, so like I will never end up with the optimal 60 or anything, but like I will definitely get the cards out of my deck that absolutely have to come out and uh, I will have enough to look like a reasonable deck against the post board. Like I never want to draw a card that is just absolutely bad in a matchup post board. Yeah, for sure. My first priority is getting my bad cards out of my deck and sideboarding. I make sure that everything that needs to get out gets out. And that's step number one. Uh, I just mentioned elephanting because I I find it's a concept that, you know, I, I know our listeners kind of range from some of the best players in the world to people who are just finding their footing. And I think the elephant style of deck building is a really useful tool to get people thinking about their sideboards the right way, as opposed to just here's some cards that I think are good in matchups. So, you know, just something I wanted to reference quickly. If you've never heard of the elephant method of deck building, look it up. There's lots of articles out there. I think it's a another Zv thing. It was kind of his baby, but a, a really good tool when you're first starting out with your kind of sideboard building process. Something that I think I've internalized at this point. It's not something I do consciously, but it's just kind of like what I'm doing when I make a sideboard, even if I'm not actually doing it. And, and I think that's the right way to approach sideboards. Yeah, I definitely agree. And I, I kind of do this accidentally too. And sometimes I'll just like actually go through and do it. I just didn't know like where the name came from. Like why an elephant? I don't know that either. But we'll have to, we'll have to do some research. Regardless, uh, I, I do think that for sideboarding, yes, you should absolutely have a plan. You should absolutely be thinking about what you want your, the, the 60 that you're presenting. And I hope it's 60 that you're presenting post board in certain matchups and you know, why, why all those cards are there? Like, why do those make sense? And once you start looking at like the bigger picture, like, okay, I have these cards coming in in this matchup, these cards coming in in this matchup, maybe one of the matchups, like you have seven cards you want to take out and eight you want to bring in. So it's like, okay, you know, I thought I wanted all these cards, but now this could be a slot for something else. And maybe it could be like the settle the wreckage or condemn type of thing where like, maybe you get to put a card in your sideboard that comes in in two spots where you're short a card, you know? Yep. And if you don't have time, you can just eyeball it, whatever. No big deal. As long as you're thinking about it. Yeah, absolutely. Modern's hard, man. Yeah, it's probably the hardest format right now. I mean, it's certainly the most diverse and certainly the most you, uh, there's the most questions answered to you when you're thinking about deck building in modern. That's for sure. There's a ton of different archetypes to account for and a ton of different macro strategies to account for and a very good balance of aggro control combo. It's, it's just a difficult format to figure out for sure. I might play blue white control. I feel like it, it is fine to leave this episode with like, what would we play next weekend if we were playing modern? Yeah, I, I'm probably playing Grixis Control. I I really love the look of of Corey's deck. It's what I love to do in Magic. I I think he may have 
hit some sweet spots with this card selection here. And I have to at least give it a shot because if this deck is as good as I think it looks on paper, I, I love the play style. I may do some tweaking with the sideboard. That might be kind of my contribution, but it would be something very close to Corey's main deck. So I like Corey's deck. I don't like its spot right now. In a world of big mana? Yeah. But I mean, we just discussed, we we can't overreact to that. And you're, you're right, there would require some adjustment in the sideboard to kind of account for the things that we expect to be prevalent. So I would look to maybe make some sacrifices in my sideboard. And like you said, he's a blue deck. He could very conceivably play Crumble to Dust and have success against those decks. So maybe that's a card I would explore. I've always hated Fulminator Mage out of this style of deck list. I, I just don't get it. I, I really want someone to explain it to me at some point because no, it, it doesn't seem powerful enough. Two two Fulminators is not, I'm going to beat up on Tron. It is like, I want to kill a Raging Ravine or a Creeping Tar Pit occasionally. And then like, this gives me a chance to... A chance against Tron. Yeah, but like, you need, like, the blue-white decks have eight of that effect in their main deck, right? Mm. Or sometimes nine, because I played like a random Ghost Quarter too. Yeah, and that amount of less in Spreading Tea, so... Right, and... You just need a high density of those effects. Drawing one Fulminator, like, maybe sets them off for a turn. Maybe. But they yeah. are very, very good at reestablishing reestablishing Tron. Like, Crucible of Worlds is still, like, a card that the blue-white deck sideboard in, right? Because they just yeah. want... They, they need, like, actual things to end the game or lock it up against them. And Grixis doesn't have that. So I, I think it is important to note that you should not overreact. However, I would not play a deck that has an inherently bad matchup against the Valakut decks, or the Tron decks. Fair enough. I, th- I think there's some concessions to be made here, but... I love Grixis, but if you can't get Field of Ruin and Spreading Seas into it, I wouldn't play it. <laughs> you're going that far, huh? We just have to have those cards this week. Well, no. I mean, if you're playing like an actual control deck, but realistically, you could just play the Through the Breach deck. Or if you're playing Grixis, you could sideboard Blood Moon. Or Platinum Imperion. I don't think that beats Tron. Probably not. No. No, it would not, it would not be Tron because they can just carn it. Well, right. I mean, they could do any number of things to it. Yep. So that's not a great plan against the the big mana decks. We'll find something. Don't worry. I, I'm convinced this deck can adapt. Hello and good luck. <laughs> Look, don't take this from me. I really just want to call against command, back a Snapcaster Mage, and then do multiple cryptic commands and and just let me have my fun one time, man. Come on. Save it for two months from now. Okay, we'll we'll put it on the back burner. Through the breach, people, you can still cryptic command. You know, that's true. That might make me happy. Might it might ignite my dead soul if I get through a little cryptic commanded. All right, sign us out with your best pretty dude voice. No, no, wait, I'm I'm cutting you off. We can't sign out yet. We haven't answered a Patreon question yet. That's our oh, thing now, snap. man. We snap. we have to answer a question. I forgot. Do we have one? Yeah, there's been a ton of questions. A ton of great questions actually in uh the the Patreon Discord. You want me to grab one for us? Let me find the most interesting one. I really like Matt Nelson's question of what's the one song if you hear it instantly makes you feel like a teenager again? Uh, Dude, I, I don't know. Mine is the 13th by The Cure. I listened to that song to death. Hmm. Do you, find, do you have a nice serious one here? Best way to go Moto Infinite is only play Constructed, never do any sort of limited. Correct. And don't test new ideas, just find the best deck and play it. Like you should be grinding teamer right now if your goal is to go infinite. Yeah, I mean something along those lines. Probably, probably mono red actually. Maybe I, I could see that being great. One of one of those two decks, right? And basically, like some one would be better some weeks, the other would be better other weeks. I think. Yeah, I think I think mono red's a little bit better, and 
it is faster, so you can play more games. Mm, but like, it, but if you're planning on playing like some sort of energy tournament or energy in a tournament, then yeah, obviously you should be playing with that deck, and like you sacrifice a little bit of equity online to actually get equity in real life. KYT asked, "What type of MTG content does Jerry like to consume?" That's that's a good question. He just wants you to say his stuff. That's why he's asking that question. Well, I'm I'm gonna disappoint him and say okay. that. Then then I like it. Go ahead and disappoint KYT. No, it's I a just I, as a guest this week as opposed to <laughs> I I consume fewer or a smaller amount of magic content these days than I did like five years ago. But Damn. back then, I used to just like read everything. Now, if if someone links me to like a good mana deprived article, I'll read it. Keith Capstick and uh, Dan Fournier and like those guys are good. Mm-hmm. Why do you think you consume less content these days than you used to? Uh, I'm too busy looking at, looking up Hearthstone deck lists. <sighs> I thought you were going to have like a poignant reason. Nope. It's just because you're out there. Leroy Jenkins in people. Oh, yeah. I do love Leroy Jenkins. I can't really fault you for that. I also I consume th- a lot less content. I, I think there's an issue with quality of content right now as a whole. Some of the kind of innovation and excitement isn't there for me anymore. And there's also just a lot of like, a lot of times rather spend the time thinking than spend the time seeing what someone else thinks. And that's not to be dismissive of other people. It's just that I'm going to get told when there's a really great article and I'm going to get the chance to read it. And when there's something that's just kind of like pushing the boat along and not really doing anything revolutionary, my time is better spent with my own thoughts, I think. Yeah, that's that's certainly reasonable. Uh, I I think I used to value, like maybe when I was playing the opens every week, I used to value like seeing where everyone's head was at, you know, yes. and like figuring like it's that old PTQ mentality, right? Where it's like I think I can nail a metagame as long as I know like what people read this week. Yeah, wow, you just kind of unlocked a key piece of the puzzle for me right there because I, I think that actually has a lot to do with why I don't consume as much content. It was essential that I had everyone's pulse because I probably had a PTQ coming up every weekend. And you know, with the death of the old PTQ system, I, I just don't have that anymore. Yeah, uh, I, I definitely agree that content is kind of worse now. I like to think that I put out good content and that's kind of why we started this podcast in the first place too, is that just like there was a noticeable lack in this sort of content, you know? And I think that uh, there was like a pretty big void that needed filling. Yeah, I hope I hope we're moving the discussion forward as far as kind of like theorizing. And I think, you know, some of our, our deck dive stuff was kind of, I don't, I don't want to pat our own backs too hard, but just something that you're not really seeing in a lot of places. And, and I think it's helping a lot of people out. Yeah. And I mean, that's not to say that other, other people's stuff like isn't good or whatever. Like, sure, sure. I, I just think that it is less timeless i suppose and like certainly we do a lot of that on this podcast too like there's a lot of value in talking about things just like on a week-to-week basis like hey what's modern look like but at the same time like we're also talking about how how to approach modern and Mm. how the format got to this way and how you can potentially see how those things would happen in the future you know so we kind of do both right it's like we we provide like some week-to-week stuff and also some stuff that you can take with you like and use six months from now yeah, I, I think that's my goal anytime we sit down to do a cast is to give something that works on on both levels. And I think we're getting better and better at that as time goes on too. So I do too. And yeah, hopefully the the people who enjoy modern listen to this all the way through and you know realize that that's kind of what we're about. Yep. Okay. I think I I, th- I think you've you've earned your pass now. I think I can allow you to sign off. I will oh, be you, at- you- 
You allow me to sign off. I'll, I'll allow you to sign off. Just so everyone knows, I'll be at GP New Jersey this weekend. I'm looking forward to talking with people and getting feedback on the cast. I'm going to try and do some vlogging, the first official game podcast vlog from GP New Jersey. So come come chat with me. I'll throw you on there. Oh, okay. I was going to say, like, please, please. I just I want to be watching the vlog and just see infinite people like photobombing. That's fine too. Yeah. You're more than welcome to just pop in the back and, and troll me. But yeah, I, I want to talk to people too. And I love feedback on the podcast. I love trying to improve for you guys. So feel free to chat with me. Yeah. And I'm not going to be there because it is, well, I have a lot of excuses, you know, as we do. We so all know it, what the main excuse is. It's Ixalan Limited. And- it's it's coast to coast. Uh, flights are kind of expensive. It takes a long time. It's Ixalan Sealed. Yeah. I like Sealed. Most of my Grand Prix Top 8s are in Sealed, which I think a lot of people don't know. And my best friend is going to be there, who is Josh Joe, not you. But you're also my good friend, and I would like to see you because we don't get to see each other very often. But I'm not going. Next time. It's okay. I'll give you a pass this time. I appreciate it, man, because this is like the only East Coast GP, I think, that that I'm skipping, you know, like this past fair, year or whatever. You give me a lot of passes because I attend events much more rarely than you do. So I, I think I owe you this one. That's fair. And I'll, t- I'll take that. I appreciate that. You're very welcome. Dude, I'm just happy whenever you show up, you know, because you, you don't go to a lot of stuff. I got to keep the novelty out there, right? If I'm at everything, you'll realize that I'm really not that exciting. So if I only show up once in a while, <laughs> I'll, keep, I'll keep this aura about me. Yeah, we, we always have to have things to talk about, right? If, if I saw you all the time, we would just run out of things and who cares, but... Yep, very true. All right, that's game.